Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 55, Revelation, Be Faithful Unto Death. And in this episode, we're going to look at the address that Jesus gives to the church in Smyrna, one of only two churches in the book of Revelation that do not receive any rebuke of any kind. And so we're going to take a look at why it is that the church in Smyrna Um, is receiving the type of persecution that they do in fact receive, a little bit about what it looked like in the first century to be a Christian, particularly in the Roman Empire, and of course emphasizing what that looked like particularly in Smyrna, and then for us to challenge ourselves a little bit on thinking, what does this mean for the way we view our own society, our own idea of empires today in the places where we live, and what Jesus' call to us as his witnesses might look like here. So let's just jump right into it. To begin this week's episode, I would like simply to read Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11 for you, which are Jesus' words to the church in Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. As we looked at in last week's episode, Jesus introduces himself again here in this um, to this church by reminding us of some aspect of his character that we looked at in chapter one. And the emphasis that Jesus um, brings to our attention here is the fact that these are the words. He is the one speaking the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And so he's drawing our attention to the idea that he is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He is here at the creation. He is the creator of the new creation. He will be living and reigning perfectly well at the end of all things. But Jesus talks about the fact that he died and came to life. And it's going to be precisely this connection that this church in Smyrna is going to need to be reminded of in order for them to remain faithful unto death. And so in this episode, what I'd actually like to do is I'm going to share with you a few different insights um, from a number of different scholars and authors that I greatly respect. Um, As I've been trying to put into words these thoughts, I realize that these guys are able to help clarify for you what it is that I actually think and what I want for you to know about this passage much better than than I can do it myself. Um, And so I'm I'm not going to apologize for that. Um, Sometimes other people have already been given the words that you and I might spend our entire lives looking for to explain precisely what it is we think. And so why not just cut to the chase and adopt the language that others have so succinctly succinctly provided for us in books or articles or talks or what have you. Um, And the first one I want to give to you is something that John Stott says in his commentary on these first couple of chapters of Revelation. He says, if the first mark of a true and living church is love, the second is suffering. And he's absolutely right. And he goes on to say, a willingness to suffer proves the genuineness of love. 
And the church in Smyrna was living out this very reality perfectly. And if you remember, I pointed out before that the reason why it's important we recognize that each one of these addresses to these churches were circulated amongst all seven churches was so that if any of the words that, that Jesus is writing to, let's say, the church in Ephesus, if their repentance actually became genuine, they really repented and embraced the love they had at first they then would find themselves in a position similar to the Christians in Smyrna. And in fact, maybe this was the case for many of those in the first century. And so it's important for us to realize that if we really want love to demonstrate itself most faithfully, it will happen when we are faced with people who prove to be our very enemies. And how is it that we are going to respond in love as light bearers and witnesses even to those people? And so the church in Smyrna, as I said in the introduction, is one of only two churches in the book of Revelation that Jesus has no rebuke for. And so what do we know about this church? Well, um, the city of Smyrna boasted of being the pride of Asia. Uh, Well-built roads gave it access to the interior of Asia and a natural harbor made for flourishing exports and trade going out of their place. Um, and as a result, it was one of the most prosperous cities in Asia Minor in the first century. Back up a couple centuries to already in 195 BC, a temple built to Roma, which was Rome's personification of itself as a goddess, um, had already been built and dedicated in the city of Smyrna. And the city had acquired a reputation for its patriotic loyalty to the empire. Around the year AD 25, many Asian cities were competing with one another for the coveted favor of erecting a temple to the Emperor Tiberius, and the privilege was granted to, you guessed it, Smyrna. All things Rome, then, its empire and its emperor, its city and its grandeur and its Caesar was all a matter of great pride in Smyrna. And in an empire that centered on its own greatness and the greatness of its emperor and the divine status of its nation and and city, what kind of life do you think Christians experienced in a place like this? Did the Christians in Smyrna refuse to sprinkle incense on the fire which burned before the emperor's bust? Of course they did. Did they refuse to elevate Rome's grandeur to the level of the divine? Yes. Did they refuse to honor Caesar as Lord? Yes, they did. They couldn't call Caesar Lord or revere the kingdom over which Caesar ruled when Jesus was their Lord and had come to usher in a kingdom of his own. Unfortunately, their unwillingness to conform to normal Roman society was interpreted by others as a disgraceful lack of patriotism. Even the Jewish population fueled this antagonism toward the Christians. I'm not sure if you remember, but all through Paul's preaching of the gospel through the book of Acts, he was constantly pressured, constantly threatened, and constantly opposed by the Jews. They tried to stone him, secretly tried to get him assassinated, often caused all kinds of riots, trying their best to incite others to rid the world of a man who so cavalierly took their scriptures and claimed that this crucified man, Jesus, was in fact their long-awaited Messiah. They hated Paul for even suggesting such a thing. 
Now, the Jews, called to be God's people to carry God's blessing to the world, the Jews then, who actually rejected Jesus as their Messiah, became staunch opponents of everything Christians did and of who they were and found themselves, in the words of Jesus here to this church, in reality, being a synagogue of Satan. G.K. Beale, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, explains the situation really well. Here's what he says. Until the latter part of the first century, Christianity enjoyed a degree of protection under the umbrella of Judaism, which was tolerated by Rome. The Jews were not forced to worship Caesar as a god, but allowed to offer sacrifices in honor of emperors as rulers and not as gods. But after Nero's persecution... Christianity came under suspicion since new religions were not acceptable in the empire. And Jews, who sometimes had no qualms in semi-revering other deities along with their Old Testament God, often were only too willing to make the Roman authorities aware that the Christians were not a Jewish sect. Jews would have viewed Christianity as a religion distorting the Jewish law and offering a perversely easy way of salvation. They also considered the Christian worship of a crucified criminal as the divine Messiah a blasphemy. And this is exactly what Paul is getting at here. And he, I'm sorry, John, sorry. This is what John is getting at here through the words that Jesus is presenting us in Revelation 2 is that he knows the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And this sometimes doesn't hit us quite the way that I think it should. Uh, Paul actually addresses this very reality in Romans chapter 2 toward the end of the chapter. If you're familiar at all with the opening chapters of Romans, Paul lays out a very clear indictment against all mankind as wayward and under the wrath of God. But then in chapter 2, he turns his attention to the Jewish people who had the law, who had knowledge of God, who had an opportunity for intimate relationship with him. And Paul paints a very dismal picture that those Jewish people are just as guilty before God despite all of the advantages that they once had. And his explanation for explaining why this is the case is because they were so focused on their external behaviors that they misunderstood the internal realities that the Lord was ultimately after. And Paul says something that's really shocking at the end of Romans 2, and let me just read it for you. He actually says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, His praise is not from man, but from God. And so what Jesus is first introducing us to here in the church in Smyrna is recognizing that if the true Jew is not one who is outwardly a Jew, i.e. through your descendants, through your physical circumcision, through your heritage, through your physical you know, connections to the people of Abraham, if we're talking about a Jew who is one inwardly, then yes, very clearly in fact, Jesus opens up the reality that in him and through a circumcised heart follower of Jesus, those people in fact become true 
Jews. And the Jewish people who are externally Jewish, who oppose Paul in the book of Acts, and who are currently slandering the Christians in Smyrna, Jesus flat out says, they call themselves Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Their work Their worship, which was supposed to take place in a synagogue, is actually taking place in a way that is reflective of worshiping of the enemy, no longer worshiping God. And Michael Gorman, in his book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, which I could not recommend highly enough, tries to help us gain a little bit of understanding about this tension. Um, We're talking about a synagogue of Satan. We're talking about a Roman Empire. We're talking about worship of the, the divine being of the Roman Empire as embodied in this goddess Roma and so on. And it's the idea that in this culture and at this time, to show your patriotism and your loyalty to the emperor and to what Rome provides for you was a very, very central feature of what it meant to be an acceptable citizen in that time. And so here are just a few of his thoughts about this this idea of empire, which he calls the imperial cult. And, and don't think of cult like a false religion like we have today. Oh, that's a cult, you know, so-and-so had a group of people drink Kool-Aid and thought that that a comet was coming at a particular or time of the night to to bring the end of the world. No, this is a religiously driven, established governmental rule. And Gorman explains this really well. He says, the imperial cult refers to a vast array of temples, images, rituals, personnel, and theological claims that honored the emperor. Temples dedicated to specific emperors and images of emperors located in other temples were focal points for offering thanksgiving and prayers to the gods for the safekeeping and blessing of emperors and members of the imperial household. Put simply, the imperial cult was an elaborate god and country phenomenon or type of civic or civil religion that in various ways attributed a sacred character to the Roman Empire, and to the emperor himself. This cult was the concrete manifestation of an ideology, a political theology, which consisted of three main convictions. First, the gods have chosen Rome. Two, Rome and its emperors are agents of the gods' rule, will, salvation, and presence among human beings. And three, Rome manifests the gods' blessing security, peace, justice, faithfulness, fertility, among those who submit to Rome's rule. Domitian was called the ruler of the conquered world, the world's sure salvation and blessed protector and savior. This kind of theology required that prayers and sacrifices be offered to the gods for the protection of the emperor. And that sheds a little bit of insight into what the Christians in Smyrna were undoubtedly up against, is that there all around them is a culture that is insistent upon the blessings that have come to them via the empire, the great rule and peace and prosperity that their emperor has brought to the land with the God's favor and the God's blessing and the God's sanctioning of all of their laws and all of their rules. 
their job as good citizens was to offer sacrifice, was to participate in, in giving. And you will notice that in the first century, if you identified yourself in any way as a person who was unwilling to offer sacrifice or unwilling to be as patriotic or as go get them as everybody else was in terms of the Roman Empire, you would face persecution economically. People would stop buying your food. They would stop buying what you have to sell. They might even choose not to sell things to you because they see you as disloyal to the very things they believe bring about their prosperity in the first place. And if your actions are so out of line with the kingdom of Rome and so out of line with emperor worship, they will probably put you out of line of the God's favor. And any person who is loyal to Rome, who is loyal to the emperor, and who is loyal to the gods that the, that the emperors worship, they don't want to put themselves in harmony or in relationship with you because that might put them out of favor with the rest of the people in Rome who are offering them their service or their business, um, as well as the blessing that everyone hopes to receive from the gods. And so what the church in Smyrna addresses for us is something fairly, fairly profound. It is addressing the fact that we're not, this is not a lighthearted discussion to have. If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be a faithful witness of his kingdom, it is going to rub shoulders funny with the kind of allegiances that people have to their own nations, their own ways of being, the patriotism people have to their countries, and the loyalties that people do not want to let go of because they are certain that by holding on to those loyalties, they are receiving God's blessing. And we can shrug our shoulders and say that in the first century, the gods, lowercase g, as we oftentimes read about it when we see it on the written page, and we kind of say, oh, that's no big deal. Those gods aren't really real. But the same thing can be flipped around today in our culture where there are many people who believe that America as a nation and the way it serves the world and the purposes that America stands for has, in fact, gods blessing. And to put yourself out of favor with patriotism toward one's country is believed by many to put yourself out of favor with the God you are certain is currently blessing this country. And I do intend for you who are listening to make that connection because that connection is meant to be made. The kingdom of God challenges every kingdom of this world, every empire that people will ever live in. And it was no different in Bonhoeffer's day. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, during the, he's a German uh, pastor, Lutheran pastor during the days of Hitler um, in Germany particularly. And this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. Now, he's exactly right, but he's more or less quoting from Philippians 1. So allow me just to read what I think he's referring to. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. 
This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And when you read Philippians 1, and it hits us exactly the way Paul says it, it has been appointed for you not only to believe in him. We, we, we get that part. We like that part. Yes, I believe in Jesus. But he said it's been appointed for you not just to believe in him, but also to suffer with him. Paul is calling us into a life where if our allegiance really is to a suffering Messiah, then the way we actually follow him, the way our discipleship looks, is to, be, is to, is to expect to receive resistance from the same kinds of entities and kingdoms and people and ways of thinking that Jesus did when he was here. And this is why he draws his attention and the Christians in the church in Smyrna, he draws their attention to the fact that the one speaking to them to hold fast and be faithful unto death is in fact the one who died and came to life again. Gregory Stevenson in a book, A Slaughtered Lamb, which I have referenced in previous episodes, has this to say, In imitation of their Lord, the Christians in Smyrna are called upon to maintain their faithful witness even if such witness leads to their deaths, because the victory of Christ is achieved through a witness that does not falter or fade, even in the most extreme circumstances. Yet, he assures them, if they share in this part of Christ's pattern, they will also share in the remainder of that pattern, Christ's glorified resurrection, or what Jesus refers to as the crown of life. The seven letters transform the concept of victory. If Christ sets the pattern, then our understanding of Christian victory must conform to Christ's own victory. Christ's victory achieved on a cross was not a victory over his Roman oppressors or over his Jewish enemies, but over the power of Satan. On one level, it would have been very easy for John's audience to conclude that their struggle was against the societal forces arrayed against them. Some churches were experiencing opposition from Rome and from their Jewish neighbors, while others were materialistic, compromising in their faith, and engaging in immorality and idolatry. The former group rejected what the kingdom of this world was was selling, while the latter group bought it wholesale. John, however, makes it clear that even though their battle was being fought on a field of Roman society, their victory was not a victory over Rome, but a victory over Satan. Rome, materialism, idolatry, and the like were all weapons that Satan was using to wage a spiritual war against the people of God. To say that Christian victory in Revelation is about conquering Roman influence is like saying that knocking the gun out of an enemy soldier's hands means that you've won the war. John seeks to divert his audience's attention away from the weapon itself to the one who wields it. And this is just stunning. Those words are perfect for exactly what it is that Jesus is trying to talk about. He's saying, those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And he recognizes, as Paul does in Ephesians 6, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers and authorities in in the heavenly places who wage war against the earth. 
And so he tells them to, you're about, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, not Rome, the devil. But remember, you have momentary tribulations and momentary afflictions. And he says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison and you may be tested for 10 days and you will have tribulation. In Revelation, again, Days, um, we could look at them as somewhat symbolic. 10 days, it's a week and a half. It's not that long. At the time you're going through it, it might seem like an eternity. Uh, If you back all the way up to the book of Daniel, Daniel and his three friends make it into Babylon. They're invited to sit at the king's table as a faithful Jew. To sit at a king's table and to eat a king's food meant that you were in agreement and in accordance with the, the ways of the king, which of course Daniel and his friends could not agree to. And so he said, we can't eat the king's food. We can't sit down at this table. And so Daniel said, look, just give us separate food. Give us only vegetables to eat for 10 days and bring us back and let us see whether or not we aren't just as healthy and just as robust and ready to serve and ready to be these king's wise servants as he expected us to be had we been seated at his table. And no, the book of Daniel is not giving us a, a health lesson. It's not telling us that why it's better to eat vegetables than it is to eat meat. What we're looking at when we read this theologically, which is what the Old Testament is for, is to recognize that there was a 10-day period where Daniel was inviting the king and his servants to test them. Put us in this position for 10 days, let us eat food that's approved by our God, and bring us back and do and wait to find out whether or not we won't be just as faithful, just as rigorous, just as eager to serve, and at the end of 10 days, they're found to be faithful, and the king brings them back into his presence. That's what Jesus is alluding to here. It's a small period of testing, but in the end, the victory will be enormous. And so he says to them, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And right here is really the thrust of his message to the church in Smyrna, and it is a massive thrust in the book of Revelation as a whole. And G.K. Beale, again, in his commentary says, overcoming, or in the ESV it's translated conquering, but overcoming is another way to look at this word. Overcoming here refers to an ironic victory wherein the earthly defeat of death is heavenly victory and life. And probably no one understood this better than Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna from A.D. 115 through A.D. 155. And what is absolutely fascinating about the man named Polycarp, which I know is a strange name to our ears, but Polycarp most likely, some of the best research out there, indicates that not only was he the bishop of Smyrna during this time, but Polycarp was born in 69 A.D., and most likely was a member of the church in Smyrna at the time that Revelation was written. And as the historical record indicates, as a bishop, he would not voluntarily offer sacrifice and worship to the emperor. And word spread. The Roman authorities came looking for him. He went and retreated to his home and this Um, provincial officer came with a number of his own guards and sought to arrest Polycarp and demand that he give allegiance to Caesar, demand that he renounce Christ. At 86 years old, he stumbles to the door, invites the soldiers in, offers them a meal and says, just sit here, um, enjoy a meal, allow me to take a few moments to pray. They allow him to. He goes back in his room for an hour to two hours, prays for the faithfulness to be faithful to Christ. 
And then the soldiers drag him away and they take him and say, look, you're an old man. Let's just not worry about this. This doesn't need to be a big deal. Just renounce Christ and give allegiance to the emperor. And here are Polycarp's words at age 86 in 155 AD, about 65 years after Revelation is written. He says, for 86 years, I have served Christ and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? He has threatened to be fed to the wild beasts and he says, okay, bring them. The provincial officer then says, hey man, don't be stupid. I mean, we'll bring the fire if we have to and throw sticks into the fire and we'll tie you to the stake and we'll burn you alive. And he says, okay, if that's what you need to do, but I am not going to betray Jesus. Out of a moment of desperation and realizing that he would lose all control if he didn't follow through on his actions, they tied him to a stake and they lit it on fire. Many of the Jews who were present that day were contributors to bringing extra sticks to make sure that the fire burned hot. A wind is actually reported to have blown the flames out, not actually allowed them to catch very well, and so someone in fact came up and ran him through with a sword. But Polycarp is an actual historical figure who chances are was there when this letter was written. And the words that Jesus gave to this church were heeded by at least one person we know historically, Polycarp. And he was faithful unto death and no doubt on that day received the crown of life. And so I want to finish our time just in this episode by drawing um, your attention to what is not present in Jesus's words to the church in Smyrna. Notice that his words to the church, um, he does not encourage them to fight against persecution. Um, Some people have concluded that the reason he doesn't is because they didn't have the opportunity. You know, Rome was too big and Rome was not a a, a Christian state or a Christian nation, have you? And so um, I, I know I've heard arguments like that before, but I actually don't think that that's the case. And um, Greg Boyd makes a tremendous argument against this, but but actually puts it in what I'm going to call a steel man argument. Uh, Many people have heard of a straw man argument, and that is you try to break down the argument of your opponent by showing it to be weak and stupid that you can easily knock it down, and then you bulk up your own view to make it look superior to the view that you just so easily knock down. Well, um, in recent months, I've come across what's called a steel man argument, and that is, as opposed to the straw man where you weaken your opponent's argument to make it easier for you to beat it, the steel man actually makes your opponent's argument stronger than what your opponent himself is able to make it. And then when you show how you can still defeat it, it absolutely swallows up the entire argument. And I think that Greg Boyd has done this um, in one of his concluding chapters in a book called The Myth of a Christian Nation. And here is what Boyd says. Let us suppose that the sky is falling. Suppose, as some have argued, that within 10 years, the government in the United States is going to make it a crime to say out loud that homosexuality is a sin. Let us suppose this will be followed, as some argue, by public evangelism being outlawed, by our Bibles being confiscated, and eventually by Christianity becoming illegal. Should we be afraid of this? Should we rise up to protect ourselves from this? 
Where do we find Jesus ever worrying about such things? When did Jesus ever concern himself with protecting his rights or the rights of the community he was founding? Did he not rather do the exact opposite and teach us to do the same? He had all the power in the universe at his disposal and had every right to use it, yet out of love, he let himself be crucified. This is how he established and manifested the domain in which God is king. And we expand and manifest the domain in which God is king by imitating him in this act. Instead of fearing the possibility of persecution someday, kingdom people should trust that if this happened, God would use it for the furthering of his kingdom, just as he used Jesus' death. In fact, as terrible as they often are, persecutions have usually had a positive kingdom effect. While gaining political power has always harmed the church, persecutions have almost always served to strengthen it. Tertullian was on the mark when he said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And Jesus' words to the church in Smyrna are potent. We, in fact, serve a king who died and came to life. This king is inviting us to follow him as the way, the truth, and the life. What else would we expect if as faithful witnesses to the faithful witness, would we expect anything less than for the persecution he received to come our way? And ought we to worm and squirm our way out from under it and get angry at those that are bringing the oppression? Or like Jesus, who on a cross prayed out with his dying breath, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus' faithful witness unto death, Jesus' love and shining the light of God's love onto people unto death is demonstrated in that dying breath. And that is the exact same thing he's calling his followers to embody. Everyone is going to face death, which is why Jesus is able to say the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. We're going to face a physical death. That is not the end for those who have embraced the life that is Jesus, the resurrection life that Jesus has come to bring we will not, in fact, face the judgment of condemnation. Our lives on this earth will end, and they will end maybe when some of us are 50, maybe when some of us are 70, maybe when some of us are 90. We do not know when that day may be. What we do know is that we're called to faithfully witness to the truth of who Jesus is, knowing that Jesus himself has already conquered the thing that tends to shut people down in their witness. And that's fear of death, fear of ostracism, fear of rejection, fear of difficult circumstances. And the church in Smyrna, at the high point of where Roman rule was in its heyday, there were a small group of Christians who said it's worth it to lose everything in order to have Jesus, to love one another, to love our enemies, 
or like Polycarp, to actually love and serve the very guards and soldiers who are coming to arrest you with an inevitable conclusion that your life will end that day. And he patiently and calmly and lovingly greets them at the door, offers to feed them a meal, and simply requests that they give him an hour to pray alone before they drag him to his death. That is a faithful witness to Jesus. And I am not giving you an explanation about this from personal experience. I know nothing about what actual suffering and persecution entail. But one of my main roles as a minister of the gospel is to simply do that. It is to hold out the truth of who Jesus is, no matter how disgustingly pathetic it makes me look by my own lack of ability to live up to it. This is who Jesus has called us to be. This is what it means to be a faithful witness. This is what it means to be a lampstand. And I don't want any of us to get sucked into a different view than what Jesus actually holds out for us. And so that's all the time we're going to take for this week's episode. Again, I'm thankful that you're continuing to tune in. Please share this with friends, with family members. You know, it's fun to share just an individual episode with people or to encourage them to go back and listen to some of your favorite episodes. Um, Love if you would get on Apple iTunes, Apple Podcast, and write a review or give me a rating. Um, for this um, podcast, what you like about it. If you want to send me an email, you can do that at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram, the Unbinding the Bible podcast. And again, look for ways to connect, share with others, be encouraged as we continue to work our way through the book of Revelation. Have a great week.